The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Society, they were the dregs of society. And think about it, these were the night shift shepherds. So they were even lower than that. Uh, These guys had the graveyard shift, and so they were out there, uh, and here was this group of ragtag men, tough and rumble and tumble, who had to be able to deal with all kinds of things, from thieves and bandits uh, to wild animals, Uh, and they were seasoned at some level and chiseled in those things, and they're there, and then all of a sudden, it says that the, the, the heavens opened up, and an angel of the Lord spoke to them. And said it caused them great fear. It caused them great fear because the angel of the Lord uh, and the angels in the scripture aren't angels that you normally would see on your little Christmas cards or even on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Uh, They weren't warm and fuzzy, but they elicited great terror within the life of those who they presented themselves to. And they spoke, and you can imagine the voice somehow echoing from heaven. And they said, we come to give you good news. And then all of a sudden, it all broke loose. And they began to sing, glory to God in the highest. This wasn't like us trying to figure out when to say arise or not to say arise or when to clap or when, when not to clap. Do I do it on one, three, two, four, or all of them uh, sort of together? They came and with perfection and excellence and volume said glory, the thing that God would not share with any other, for he is jealous of it more than anything else, glory, weightiness, God, glory to God in the highest, in the highest of places, in heaven itself, glory to God, and on earth, shalom, to men, and in that inclusive statement to men and women and children, upon whom his favor rests. And the next response of the shepherds was, cool. They didn't text it. They didn't take a quick selfie with the angels and say, hey, do you mind? <laughs> they, it says they were gripped with terror. They were afraid. And they were confused. Why? Because something had been declared to them that they had desperately been seeking their entire lives and didn't know was available. And now it was being proclaimed to not only be available, but done. It had happened. And the thing that they were declaring, the truth, the good news, the, the gospel, if you would, and, and the, the original, it's the euangelion, which came down to the evangel or the good news. What they were presenting was good news. It was truth. It was fact. It wasn't fiction. And so if you're here today uh, and you're going to leave this place and go, that was pretty neat and it's fun to have Christmas, but it's just a wonderful story, but it's not really true. It's a myth or it's a legend. I'm here to tell you the basis that I'm preaching from and teaching on and the foundation of our church is that it's not a myth or a legend. It is absolute truth, a historic event that happened. And with all true events, with truth itself, here's what truth does to us. It forces you to deal with it. You have to react to it somehow. And that's what the angels were saying. There's a truth. And the truth is this. Peace is now made between God and man. So the truth that they were proclaiming, the good news that the angels were, were, were proclaiming, 
was this, peace, shalom. So our question today in the few minutes that we have uh, is really a couple of things. One, why do we need peace? Why is that good news to us? Why is it important to us to, to say that we need peace? So the first thing we have to understand is our need for peace. The next thing we're going to look at uh, is then what is the source of this peace? And then finally, we're going to ask the question, how do we attain this peace? So we're going to look first at our need, our source, and then how do we attain it? So first, our need for peace. I remember my dad telling a story. He was a pastor, and he had gone to the hospital and was visiting a man who was dying prior to the days of hospice and of tender care. And he was there in the hospital, and he was alone, and he was dying. And my father went to him and said, friend, have you made peace with God? And his response was, I didn't know we were quarreling. If you don't know that you have a desperate need for peace with God, Christmas and Christianity and all the other stuff means nothing to you. It's at best a snap-on to try try and make your life more peaceful. You realize there's a massive difference between peace and peacefulness. Peacefulness is, I don't want there to be stress in my life. I want there to be uh, peacefulness in my home, in my marriage. I, I want those things. But if you were to go and you were to declare in some of the parts of Africa today where there is such tribal genocide happening, if you were to go into Afghanistan or go into Iraq or go into Syria and say, I'm declaring peace to you today. Peace has been made. What do you think the people realize? They realize war is done. The killing is stopped. It's all over. It's not a peacefulness. It's actual peace. And what we have to recognize is our desperate need of this peace. You see, the human condition, as one writer put it, the human condition is a condition of warfare. We are constantly at war. We're at war with God. We're at war with ourselves. We're at war with one another. And we're at war with the world around us. And some of you may go, but I'm not at war with God. I don't have any beef with God. Why would he have a beef with me? Maybe you're investigating the faith today. or Maybe you're coming back and this is your season to come. And I'm so glad that you're here. But what I want, to hear, want you to hear more than anything else is that you and God are at enmity. There is a war going on there, and you need peace. If you were to flip over in your Bibles to Romans 8, 7, you'd see this statement. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Basically, what Paul is saying is the normal human condition is one of hostility towards God. That there's enmity there, and that we're desperately in need of this peace. And because of the breakdown of this peace between us and our creator, it flows out that we're not at peace with ourselves, that there's an internal strife. Could you say with absolute confidence that as you look in the mirror, you could declare to the person that you're seeing in the mirror, I'm at full peace with you. There's no internal conflict. There's no internal wrestling. Very few of you could make that statement. 
Because part of the fallout, when Adam and Eve, all the way back in Genesis 3, rebelled against God and all mankind fell with them in that rebellion, and because of the rebellion vertically against God, it said that now internally, before everything had been integrated perfectly. We were integrated perfectly in relationship with God. The Garden of Eden was a picture of absolute perfect integration. But what happened when sin entered the world was now a new word was formed, disintegration. That we were no longer integrated together. We were no longer integrated in our relationship with God. They used to walk in the cool of the evening and be integrated with God in the relationship and the beauty with God. And it says that they were set and there was an integration within their own souls. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was nothing there. But all of a sudden sin entered and they felt what? Shame and guilt entered. And then there was an animosity and there was a disintegration, not only between themselves and God, between themselves and their own hearts, but now between one another. Think of Adam and all of his wonderful leading and masculinity when God said, what happened? He threw his wife straight under the proverbial bus. God, it was the woman that you gave me. You can imagine that went well at dinner that night. Honey, really? Conflict. And then really quickly in one generation, Adam or Cain and Abel. And that the whole world around them It says that there's such disintegration and there's such lack of peace that you're going to try to till the ground. You're going to go try and work and you're going to do this and it will cause you pain and difficulty in this life. Everything is at a loss of peace. We are in desperate need of peace. War with God. War with ourselves. That we're fractured and broken people. That we have competing desires uh, within us. The things that we want to do, Paul said, the thing I want to do most, I don't end up doing. And the thing I don't want to do, I end up doing over here. Oh my goodness, I'm a mess. You ever found yourself in that position? You're at war with yourself. I want to do this, but I don't. You're at war and lack of peace with one another. And then ultimately, too, with the world around us. That we're all disintegrating, we're dying. Even the most healthy of you are finding that your bodies are breaking down. And that you can do all that you want to do and you can work hard and work hard and work hard to stay healthy. And you still have absolutely no control if cancer decides to enter into your cells. If death decides to come and visit. If you like to run, great, but you can't outrun the ultimate end. And so we find ourselves at a lack of peace. You feeling good and peaceful right now? I'm trying to build it a little bit for you here. Because here's, here's the problem. If I come to you and I offer you something to eat, but you're not hungry, you're not going to take it. If I come and offer you water and say you need this to give you life, you're not going to take it. There was a great illustration this way. Let's say we all get on a plane and we're heading over to Hawaii and we're on a plane of, let's say, it looks like around 320 people. And we're all there and we're going along and the the stewardess comes up to you and she whispers in your ear, she says, here, uh, here's a parachute. Hold on to it. And you're like, okay. So you're holding on to the parachute. It's big and bulky and ugly. It doesn't match. doesn't do anything. And so you're sitting there. And then there are other 319 people on the plane start snickering, going, look at that person. They look so stupid. <laughs> Why are they holding a parachute? And after a while, everybody kind of looking at you and doing this to you, what are you going to do with the parachute? 
I kind of set that thing down over here. I don't really see a great need for it. But if the stewardess had come to you and whispered in your ear, I just talked to the pilot. We're crashing in 10 minutes. Here's the only parachute that we have. Would your way of gripping it be different? Would you maybe start to move towards the exit aisle? Start to figure out how to move the latch? And then when people started to snicker at you, you would go, oh, no, no, I know I need this parachute and you are not getting it from me because I know something that you may not know. That's kind of what we're trying to build here. If you don't realize your desperate need of being at peace with God, then the advent of Jesus Christ is nothing more than sentimentality to you. It's just niceness and an opportunity for you to give some gifts, eat some food, be around some people, feel better about yourself, and then start the new year with resolutions that you're not going to keep in hopes that maybe next year you'll feel better and you'll start the whole cycle all over again. But if you realize that Christmas is more than that, that Christmas is the expression of God to a people who said, you are going to be destroyed unless you find peace with me. And that's where we find the source then of our peace. We must see then the source of They say in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is not a declaration or a treaty between governments. This is not a proposal to be debated on the floor of Congress. This is nothing else. This is a declaration and a statement and a person that says the source of your peace is the person of Jesus Christ. No one else. Nothing else will ever give you the peace you so desperately desire. Because every other peace that you find in your life is a relative and a partial peace. Christ is a concrete and a steady peace. He says, you have to come to me in this. Look at Zechariah, uh, the, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, when he's prophesying and speaking about his son. He says there in verse 76, And you, child... That is John. You will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's basically saying this You are going to be the one who is going to speak about the one of peace. You're going to be the one who heralds and points people to the peace that we need. So the source of peace that we find is God himself. He said this, you can never end the war on your own. You can't do it by your good merit. You can't do it by your desiring. You can't do it, I have to end the war. I have to do it. And the way that God decided to end the war between him and us, between him and all of the redeemed, between him and humanity was this. He took the war on himself. He looked at his son and he said, son, I'm going to have to destroy you so I don't have to destroy them. I'm going to have to take full, outright war on you. I'm going to have to commit genocide to you, my beloved son. You are going to have to become the object of my wrath so that they don't have to. No other religion, no other philosophy even comes near to saying something like that. The gospel of Jesus Christ says this. Jesus said that I am the way of peace, and the way of peace is this. I took war on myself for you. I stood in the gap. I went to the gallows. I stood before the firing squad. 
I'm the one who sacrificed so that you could be at peace with God. There's no other way around it. Now, for some of you, you're still working out of this works mentality where you're saying, but I can be good enough. I can just do enough good things. I, I, can, I can live this way. I can be moral enough. I can be righteous enough. And then God and I will be at peace. He said, that's not enough. You can never be good enough. You can never be moral enough. You can never be right enough. Only my son can. And Jesus is saying, I am the absolute only source of peace for you. And you have to come to me. There is an exclusive claim to Christianity that you cannot get around. I don't want to hide it today for you. Because I want you to see. I want you to grab the parachute and go, I'm not letting go of this parachute. No matter what other things are offered to me, no matter what other options are offered to me, no matter if anybody says, well, look around the world, it's not all that bad. Are you sure this plane's really going down? Are you sure it's going to crash down? I want you to see and be assured of this. It is going to crash down. There is an end coming. And I need to have the only way to find peace, Jesus Christ himself. And I'm going to hold so tightly to him and get him. So then the question then naturally begs for us this. How then do you attain your peace? How do you attain your peace? You know your need for peace. You've seen now, hopefully, uh, that the place to gain your peace is in Christ himself. And it isn't fascinating how he gained peace for us. It looked like he lost. If you go to war and you are shot and you are killed on the field of battle, you didn't win. You lost. And Jesus went and he died. And his enemy thought that they'd won. Death itself thought they won. And Jesus at the end sort of did the end around and said, nope. And he rose from the dead. And so the tying in of Advent to Easter, the tying in of the cradle to the cross, comes and says it was through this miraculous way that he had to die to blow apart all of the power of sin and reigning sin and death in your life so that you could gain it. So here, now, how do you attain it? You want to know how you attain it? Okay. Go to a lot of churches, and here's what they're going to tell you. Be a good person. Work really hard while you're on earth. Obey the golden rule. Do the Ten Commandments. Let me ask you a question. How's that working? Perfect so far today? Anybody? 100% perfect. Nope. Me neither. So, now we're in trouble. So how do we attain it? How do we get this gift that God is offering to us in Christ Jesus? If it's not by our merit and we live in a system and we live in a world that says it's always by your merit. Everything that you have is by your merit. Econ 101, Professor Dr. Arnold walked in. He said, ladies and gentlemen, here is the basis of our entire society and you need to know it. You need to write it down. I'll never ask you again, but you better have it memorized. There is no such thing as a free lunch. And he walked out of class. And that was my introduction to economics and capitalism in America. And we buy into that spiritually, though, don't we? What do you mean God is just freely offering this to me? What do you mean it's a gift that's given to me? I've got to do something in order to attain it. I've got to do something in order to merit it. And God is saying this. And look at these words. And it's so often misunderstood because it's so often uh, mistranslated. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The NIV gets it best. Some of you are used to the King James Version, which says something like, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Or glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men 
uh, with whom he is pleased. And you kind of get this picture of, oh, it's because I've done these things and God is pleased with me. So if God is pleased with me, then I will get the gift. And so you work hard to please God. And you know the days, and you can give yourself a little, here's a little uh, test for you. You've all come to church today. Good job. You got up and you got dressed relatively nicely. Some of you better than others. I can't look over at Jack. His, his sweater keeps you know, flashing over here. I love it. Uh, but it, we get dressed up, and you're feeling good, and you've come to church, and you got, some of you got your kids to Sunday school, and that was really good. And you've listened to a sermon, and most of you haven't fallen asleep uh, during the sermon, and some of you sang, and you've done all of these wonderfully good things today. And now, as you leave the parking lot today, and you pull out onto 278 uh, to go, you get into a wreck. Someone just rear-ends you and smashes your car. If anywhere in your mindset something like this begins to happen, really, God, I just left church. You have deep in you a root of works righteousness that says, God, you owe me. God, you owe me for my performance. I went to church. I sacrificed. I wrestled with the kids. I got up. I had a long night last night. I got a long day coming the rest of the day. And I came. You, I, don't, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve the wreck. I don't deserve the divorce. I don't deserve cancer. I don't deserve bankruptcy. I don't deserve difficulty. I don't deserve my boyfriend breaking up with me. I don't deserve being alone in my latter years. I don't deserve this, God. You owe me. I've been working my whole life to please you, and now you owe me peace. The gospel turns that totally on its head. Why do you think that Jesus came to shepherds first? Why to a little peasant girl in a little no-name town? Why did Jesus hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and soldiers and lepers and the dregs of society? Why did he say, bring the children who have absolutely no place in society? Why did he say, let me come to them first? Why? Because they knew their need. And they knew they could never earn it. They knew they could never get it. They just had to receive it. And just say, God, even on my best day, I don't deserve what I'm gaining, and so I will receive it, and I will take it, and the rest of my life, every bit of it, as much as I can, is going to look back to you and go, God, in response to this incredible gift that I have been given, the mercy and grace that I have been shown, the peace that I have received, God, because of that, now I'll live a righteous life. Not I'm going to live the righteous life to get it. But I've gotten it, and it so transforms me that I live in a different way. And some of you have a really hard time receiving gifts. You're bad at it. You like to give them, but you don't like to receive them. Maybe it's because you don't feel worthy. Maybe it's because you think there's strings attached. Maybe you're thinking, great, they spent 50 bucks, now I've got to spend 60 the next time. Great, now I've got to go do this. And you don't know. The whole gift-giving thing in America is totally lost. I've actually been with people who resent getting gifts because they feel now obligated to give a gift back. Isn't that warped? None of you would feel that way, I'm sure. None of you would do that. 
I mean, we've gotten so bad at gifts. I was watching Good Morning America. The kids are actually, and I'm probably going to offend somebody here. Kids are actually registering at Toys R Us for, for birthday parties. Come to the birthday party. You can check my registry at Toys R Us before you come because I'd like to get exactly what I want. We don't know how to give gifts, and we don't know how to receive them. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing if some of you are sitting out there going, we did that. But God is giving you a gift. He's saying the only way that you can receive it is to recognize you don't deserve it. And you can't gain it. And the only response then is to go, glory to God in the highest. Praise be to this God who's given me more than I could have asked or dreamed or imagined. Because I know what I deserve. And yet you have shocked me today, God, with the beauty of the gift that you've given to me. What did those shepherds do? It says that they went out singing and they headed straight to Bethlehem. You think people looked at them weird? I imagine they probably did. Not often you see a band of shepherds come wandering into a town singing and telling crazy stories about the Messiah. You can imagine that the Pharisees and the religious leaders and all the people of the know would have said, what are you talking about? And they would have said, we don't care. We have seen angels. And we have the message, and we know the truth, and we are going to live it out regardless of what you say. And that's the same way with the Christian life for you. When you have encountered this Christ, and you've received the gift that he's given you, and you know and have the peace of God that comes in and now makes you right with God, and through that you can now become one who is a peace giver, a peacemaker, and a peace experiencing. That you can now experience peace, and you can give peace. Only when you've received peace from God. So here's my question to you today. You want to get a really good gift? I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And for some of you, maybe it's the first time you pray this prayer. And it's basically this, God, I want to be at peace with you. I'm tired of striving. I'm tired of doing. And I want to be made right with you. Would you give me Christ today? And in that moment, guess what you get? You know what you get? Anybody? You get Christ. God says, here he is. And all the fullness of the life that he gives you. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to acknowledge our need. We get embarrassed. We have been conditioned and raised never to show weakness or just enough to make sure that we still show our humanity. But God, what you call us to is to be fully exposed. And we don't like to be exposed. You make declarations about us and about our condition that are hurtful. They're difficult to wrestle with. They're not sweet and light and sappy. But they're deep and profound and meaningful. But yet in our heart of hearts, we know they're true. So God, I pray today that we would see Christ as our peace. We would experience his peace, peace with you. And then through that, the beginnings, even though it's not full yet, it's partial and it's fleeting, a peace within ourselves where we still battle until he comes again and a peace with others. There'll still be difficulty, but we can begin. And we go out in the name of peace and we want to be peacemakers within this world. 
and to see peace come to our town and our island, come to our families, come to our country and world. But God, it starts with us coming to you. And so for some today, God, I pray that they would pray this prayer. God, I know that I'm not at peace with you. And I want to be at peace. I'm tired of trying. And so I lay it all down. All my goodness and all my badness. I lay them both down. And I take only Christ. Would you be my peace? Father, would that prayer prayed in the heart of some today change eternity? And would the angels be amazed? Father, we praise you and give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. It's neat in Peter's gospel, in his writing, he makes this statement about the gospel. He says, even the angels gaze upon it. They are so fascinated with what we're just talking about. Because guess what? God never took on angel form. He never came and dwelt among them in that way. And they look in it and they gaze on it and they are totally fascinated by it. I hope for you today, for some of you, if it was your first time of gazing in it, that you're fascinated. And those of you who've been gazing for years, you never lose your fascination. That you're captivated by the beauty of this gospel. Let's stand and sing.